Will you please turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Ecclesiastes 2. And if you need a Bible, these brothers have some. They're going to make their way to the back, so get their attention. If you want one of those, they'll get one to you. And it's marked at Ecclesiastes chapter 2 for you. Well, this morning, in just about 30 minutes together, we've already said and sung much about God and Christ and the Lord. And, of course, that's to be expected, since that's just what you do in a worship service. But, of course, just because we speak and sing about God on Sunday... It does not necessarily mean that it makes a practical difference in our lives the rest of the week. In fact, in many ways, the lives of those who are Christian look the same as the lives of those who are not. In that, we have problems. We all have pressures on our time and our finances. And we all have desires for ourselves and for our families. But even though our circumstances are very much the same, the manner and the motivation for how we handle them should be quite different. Though we have many of the same kind of problems, we as Christians can face them differently. Though we have the same amount of time as our non-Christian friends, we have reason to allocate that time differently. Though we generally have the same amount of money, We have good reasons to spend it differently. The truth is, the person and work of Christ, the reality of the Lord in our lives, should make a practical difference, not just in an hour or so on Sunday, but every moment of every day. But my observation is that many professing professing Christians live as practical atheists. That is, there's a disconnect between these few moments on Sunday and then every other day. And certainly non-Christians, by definition, live as though God were not real and makes no difference to them. Although polls always show upwards of 90% of people believe in God so that they're not philosophical atheists, they still live as though he makes little or no difference. But whether it's an atheism of the philosophical or the practical variety, the disconnect between God and our daily lives has real-world consequences. The late Christian theologian and philosopher Francis Schaeffer called this disconnect the line of despair. Above the line is God and a knowledge of Him that affects our everyday lives. Below the line, there may be a mental assent to belief in God, but no application of that belief to daily living. And today, most people live below the line of despair. And it's had devastating consequences. According to a report released last year by the National Center of Health Statistics, suicide rates have surged among all ages except older adults. The New York Times summarized the report saying, suicide in the United States has surged to the highest levels in nearly 30 years, with increases in every age group except older adults. The rise was particularly steep for women. It was also substantial among middle-aged Americans, 
sending a signal of deep anguish from a group whose suicide rates had been stable or falling since the 1950s. The suicide rate for middle-aged women ages 45 to 64 jumped by 63%. And it rose by 43% for men in that age range. The overall suicide rate rose by 24% from 1999 to 2014, including an alarming increase among girls ages 10 to 14, whose suicide rate has tripled. So though we may be very busy in all sorts of activity, when life is disconnected from God, we know deep down that we are just doing time. And so then many reason why put up with all the pain if life is ultimately meaningless. Now the book of your Bible that I've asked you to turn to deals with this very issue of life below the line. What it is called life under the sun. And it concludes, as many others have, that it's futile. In fact, in chapter 2 and verse 11, Solomon, who wrote Ecclesiastes, says this. I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve. And everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Now, we've seen in previous weeks that the word Meaningless has been used several times as we looked at the opening chapter. In fact, it was used four times in just the first two verses. And the Hebrew word that's translated meaningless means empty or futile. Life below the line of despair, from the perspective that's limited to under the sun, is empty. It's futile. It's a chasing after the wind. And that's another phrase that we've already seen that's used dozens of times in this book. And it's saying that life is like a wisp of smoke. When you close your fingers around it, you grasp at it, you find no substance there. Now cheer up. Because God never leaves us in that despair. Yes, indeed, he tells us the bad news about the reality of life apart from him. But he does that to point us to the good news of what life was made to be like with him at the center. So although it's true that life apart from God is meaningless, our objective today and in each message in this series is to understand in the title of this series how to find meaning in a meaningless world. We're going to continue that quest then today in chapter 2. Let's ask God to help us as we do. Our Father, we thank you for your sovereign providence in bringing us together now for these sacred moments to focus our attention on your word and the truth that it tells us about life in the world apart from you. Having gathered us now, Lord, help us to heed what you say and apply your truth to our lives so that we can be lights in the darkness. And so that we can pursue the mission that you have left us here to achieve. To show you in the way we think, in the way we talk, in the way we act. And for that to have an effect on an onlooking world so that still others are drawn to the light that is in you. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Now, every week we have a, an outline for the message inserted in your program. And if you haven't taken that out as yet, I encourage you to do that so that you can follow along. Where we say, first of all, apart from God, we live for what's next. Apart from God, we live for what's next. And I say that because in verse 1 of chapter 2, Solomon says, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Pleasure was the next thing Solomon determined to explore in order to find meaning in life. Last week we saw in the final section of chapter 1 that he sought to analyze life intellectually and methodically. Kind of like a scientist trying to find answers in a laboratory. If you look back at chapter 1 and verse 13, he said, I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. But then he gave us his conclusion at the end of verse 17 and into verse 18. I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow, the more knowledge, the more grief. So now, having tried and failed to find meaning there, he's going to try something else, pleasure, to see if meaning can be found in it. Now, pleasure in Ecclesiastes is not necessarily evil. We're going to see in the weeks to come that God has made his world for us to enjoy, but hear this, to enjoy as he intended. What we do is we often find pleasure in the misuse of what God has made. And we do this because we seek pleasure in the things that God created rather than enjoying them as a reflection of the Creator. The Hebrew word for good in verse 1 is a word that means worthwhile. So Solomon is saying that he decided to move from intellectual study of life to an experiential study, plunging himself into pleasure to find out if that would make life worthwhile. That is, will pleasure make my Solomon's life worth the while? Worth your and my while? Worth the time and effort and emotional investment? And before telling us what all he pursued, he gave us the conclusion. This also proved to be meaningless. And friends, it will prove to be meaningless for us as well. If we pursue the good gifts that God provides, apart from him as the center, as the giver. We find too often pleasure and joy in created things rather than the creator. And you will know that you are tied to the things rather than the one who made the things when you are despondent without them, even though you always have him. Do you hear that? Even without the stuff, even without the things, I always have God. And therefore, if my joy And what makes life worthwhile is found in God, then that can be constant no matter what I have at any given time. But apart from God, apart from a God-centered approach to life, we go from one thing to the next. Looking for what or whom is going to provide fulfillment. 
What's the next thing I can look forward to? What can I be planning for tomorrow to give me motivation for today? Well, if that's of eternal value, then it's worthwhile. If not, it's worth less. And Jesus spoke of living lives that way. Living lives based upon things that are simply temporary for the sake of those temporary things and how worthless that is. You remember he told the story in his famous Sermon on the Mount of two builders, one who built on a solid foundation on rock, another who built on sand. He said this, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Building his life, building her life on a foundation of sand that will collapse. In another passage in your New Testament, the Apostle Paul spoke of building lives upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. And he gave a warning that we need to be careful how we build those relationships, how we build our own lives and how we build into the lives of others. He said this, If anyone builds using gold, silver, costly stones, but then also wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. And the quality of each person's work will be revealed. Building life on sand, building with wood and hay and straw. Note that both of these have in common that they do not last and they ultimately amount to nothing. So we have these good gifts of relationships and the things that God has has made But we need to use them, must use them, as they are intended. Otherwise, we will, as Solomon, just go from one thing to the next, trying to find fulfillment. His next thing was pleasure. But I say in your outline, apart from God, we not only live for what's next, we live for what's better. That is, we look for what's better in the next thing. You start that next thing, in this case, pleasure... You start various kinds of pleasure. And as we're going to see in Solomon's words, they don't fulfill. So I go to the next thing within the pleasure category to see if it's any better. So here Solomon is looking for what's better among this next category of pleasure. Because you see, since pleasure does not satisfy for the long term, then we find ourselves having to explore different kinds of pleasures in hope of finding one that works. And we're always having to look for what's better because the experience stands by itself. It stands alone. It's judged in the moment for what the person or event can do for us without reference to a larger purpose or a larger context. And we always find it to be unsatisfying. Solomon gives a list of things that he pursued in this category of pleasure. First, in your outline, he experimented and we experiment with frivolity. Frivolity, what is frivolous? Verse 2 of chapter 2. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? Laughter is madness. So as I pursued pleasure to see if it would provide fulfillment and meaning, I started with frivolity, with laughter, taking a kind of comedic approach to life. 
One commentator says comedy is something that many people use to make it through life. When they feel insecure, they make a joke about something. When they get down on themselves, they make fun of other people. When they are bored, they look for something to give them a giggle, like one of the sitcoms on television or a funny video clip on YouTube, anything to get a laugh. Solomon tried this sort of thing too, and yet it failed to bring him any lasting fulfillment. His conclusion was, it's madness. What use is it? Now here the word madness does not refer to being out of one's mind, the way we might use it today, but to something sinful. It indicates moral perversity rather than mental oddity. A lot of laughter is like that. It's morally perverse. Not all of it, of course. In fact, the Bible commends laughter as being good for the soul. There's a joyful laughter that brings glory to God. Proverbs 17 says this, a cheerful heart is good medicine. But a lot of joking is frivolous and superficial or else cynical and sarcastic, sometimes even cruel. Proverbs that just said that a cheerful heart is good medicine also says this, like a maniac shooting flaming arrows of death is one who deceives their neighbor and says, I was only joking. Like somebody who is shooting deadly arrows around in a crowd is someone who throws words around and jokes around in a way that can be hurtful and deceptive. And people resort to that. To honor God, then, we need to ask whether our laughter is rejoicing in the goodness of God or is coming at someone's expense. Solomon discovered that when it comes to understanding the meaning of our existence, laughter turns out to be a useless pleasure. So his words in verse 2 can be paraphrased this way. I concluded that laughter and merriment for their own sakes were madness. What did they accomplish to help me find lasting meaning and purpose in life? Life, in fact, is no laughing matter. Some people laugh their way all their way to the grave. But there's nothing funny about the deathbed of someone who dies without Christ. And laughter often masks loneliness and or pain. One comedian wrote, on stage last week, making people, people laugh, doing a corporate gig, I felt almost fraudulent saying, yes, you can turn problems into punchlines. Woohoo. Yet my negativity was telling me BS. You can't laugh me away. She says, I've always agreed with what Charlie Chaplin said. To truly laugh, you must be able to take your pain and play with it. I wondered if maybe I have been using comedy to avoid deep-seated issues that now have splattered on the windshield of my life. When I was able to joke about painful things, I felt I'd conquered my demons. However bad something was, I saw it as material. I had a horrible breakup and I had comedy gold. And when I made an audience laugh about something that hurt, the hurt went away. But now it's become, she says, no big shock to hear about comics being depressed. After Robin Williams' death to suicide, John Belushi's overdoses, or Richard Jenny's suicide, there were people who couldn't believe it, and they said, but they were so funny. But comics, comedians, understood. We know that the funniest people are surrounded by darkness. 
The deeper the black hole, the more humor you need to dig yourself out of it. Comedy and tragedy are a team. When Stephen Colbert was 10, his dad and two brothers died in a plane crash. Tina Fey's face was slashed by a stranger when she was little. Frivolity, comedy, laughter will not escape the reality of meaninglessness and pain in a fallen world. Solomon pursued it. He pursued frivolity. He experimented with that, but also I say in your outline, he, like we, experimented with stimulants, with frivolity but stimulants. And I say that because of what he says in verse 3. I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the days of their lives. So he says, I tried alcohol. If laughter and comedy aren't going to do it, maybe alcohol will. So I tried cheering myself with wine and just letting go, embracing folly. He adds, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. So I was, I was still had my wits about me. I still understood what was going on. But I got enough of a buzz to try to figure out if that would help dull the pain and give me some meaning in life. Alcohol is one of many ways that people escape. So I didn't say we experiment just with alcohol. I said the word stimulants because, of course, it may be something else that we use to escape. It may be comfort food. It may be prescription drugs or illicit drugs or anything else that you use as an escape mechanism. And if you are drowning your sorrows away, now hear this, friends. If you're drowning your sorrows away in whatever, you're sinning. Because rather than turning to God, you're turning to a substance. You're turning to a thing. If you're drowning your sorrows away in alcohol, likewise you are sinning. And Solomon tells us it's a dead end. Getting drunk ever is a sin. In fact, the Bible says it straight up. Do not get drunk on wine. In the list in Galatians chapter 5 that tells us of the fruits of the Spirit, it first tells us of the acts of the sinful nature in contrast to the fruits of the Spirit. And it says this, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious and then lists a bunch of them. Things like sexual immorality and idolatry and hatred and jealousy and fits of rage and selfish ambition and envy. And notice among them, drunkenness, orgies and the like. To get drunk ever, once, is sin. Now the Bible does not say one could never have an alcoholic drink. But here's the thing. If you don't have a drink, you'll never get drunk. And drunkenness is spoken of in the most negative terms over and over in the Bible. The only way to get drunk is to drink, so it's wise to avoid drink altogether. But we experiment with frivolity, 
with stimulants, I say in your outline as well, with possessions. In trying to find what's better, in immersing ourselves in pleasure, we try the first thing, in Solomon's case, that was laughing it away, drinking it away, but now consuming it away. Possessions. Verse 4. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. That's a lot. That's quite a resume, isn't it? That's the kind of life. You look at that. And many people, and and I'm sorry to say many professing Christian people would look at that and say, now that's living. Now that's what I want. The Bible tells us elsewhere of Solomon's achievements. The Bible tells us he spent seven years building the temple of God. It's been estimated that the dollar value of Solomon's temple was in the billions. That's with a B. Yet the building itself was smaller than a basketball court. That's how much gold was laid into that building. And yet he turned right around and he built a house for himself. It took seven years to complete the temple. It took him 13 years to complete his own house. And the list of his achievements is very long. The temple, his own house, that is palace. He had a winter home, the Bible tells us, in the forest of Lebanon. He built government buildings, one called the Hall of Pillars, another called the Hall of Judgment. He constructed two courts, one for himself and one for his wives. He built fortifications around Jerusalem and other cities like Hazor and Megiddo and Gezer. He built entire cities, a very long list of entire cities. Did you know that Solomon built cities, some of those cities that had just one purpose, and that purpose was to serve as a storehouse for his riches with barracks of soldiers round the city to protect his wealth? When in verse 5, he says, I built parks, the word from which we get our word paradise is the word that's the Hebrew word that's used there. Solomon set out to replicate the splendor of Eden. And we all look at that and we say, that's living, man. That's life. Now, most of us look at it and it's just like a, you know, an episode of the old show, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. We'll never achieve that. So we'll never be guilty of the kind of indulgence that Solomon was, right? Well, see, hear this. The point is not, do you have the wherewithal to do it? The point is, is that what you want to do? Is that where your heart is? And if we tell the truth about it, that's where the heart of many of us is. 
We say things like, as we build our little version of a palace somewhere, this is, quote, my little slice of heaven. You know, that's what Adam and Eve did in seeing the garden as an independent source of fulfillment. We are not to pursue material, but rather pursue God. And then we can truly enjoy what God has made. Notice how many times in verses 4 through 8, Solomon Solomon says, I made for myself. Over and over again, I made for myself this, I made for myself that. Those five verses are an ode to consumerism. And hear this, friends, just because we don't have the opulence and the wealth of Solomon does not mean we don't have the same desires that Solomon had in his futile attempt to find meaning. So we experiment with frivolity, with stimulants, with possessions. Fourthly, in your outline, we experiment with entertainment. At the end of verse 8, he says, I acquired male and female singers. (laughs) So Solomon didn't have a CD player. But who needs one when you can get the singers right there? You can just pay them and have them at your beck and call all the time, live entertainment. You say, wow, that is really going overboard. Yeah, right. How many times do you see somebody... Hours on end with an earpiece earpiece in their ear. Constantly listening, and, and young people in particular, listen to me. You are constantly living to be entertained. Constantly living to be distracted. And all the while you're doing that, you're missing the things that are most important in life. We're going to talk about those in a bit. So Solomon could snap his fingers, live singers, you can just hit the button and you can have entertainment. So we experiment with frivolity and stimulants and possessions and entertainment. And then lastly, sex. The very end of verse eight. He says, I acquired a harem as well. The delights of a man's heart. The Bible tells us Solomon had a thousand women. If you think about it, there's really nothing that expresses his self-centeredness in this quest more than that. Here's a man who was concerned at this point in his life only with his own pleasures, not the needs of those in his harem. The truth is he couldn't know these thousand women. He couldn't know what they needed and seek to meet those needs. It was all about what he needed. Now, I'm going to say this quickly and then I'll duck so I don't get shot. Hopefully this will protect me. You know, this is one of the things, this profile that Solomon lays out here is one of the things that, friends, I just have to tell you honestly concerns me about the fawning admiration that some Christian people express for our president. Now, he's our president, and so I respect the office of president. I don't mean that. But our president is a living embodiment of nearly everything 
described by Solomon as useless and futile. Did you know that? I say nearly because it turns out he doesn't drink, our president. He's a teetotaler. What is there to admire in his character? But too many of us want what he has in our own smaller measure. And take the president. I'm not trying to wax political here. Take him. He's just, you know, one, one person. If he weren't president, it would be the same thing. In fact, I'm going to mention him, something about him before he was president in just a bit. But just anybody who has all of that and lives for all of that. And in our heart of hearts, for many of us, that's what we want. Apart from God, we live for what's next. And then moving on to what's next, we have to find what's better within what's next. And then thirdly, apart from God, we live for what's admired. We desire this admiration from others. Verse 9, Solomon says, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I achieved this. I wanted this. But I also didn't. Let it take me beyond my senses. My wisdom stayed with me. But we want to be admired. We want to be admired for our accomplishments. Maybe that will give us fulfillment. We desire it from others, but we also, I say in the outline, desire it from ourselves. Because in verse 10, Solomon says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor and this was the reward for all my toil. My heart, my own heart, took delight in it. I was satisfied in it. I admired myself as I stood back and looked at what I had achieved. So Solomon tells us that's the view of life pursuing pleasure. And he just gives some of the pleasures. There are more that you could list. And all of it ends up in verse 11 being a chasing after the wind, being meaningless. The view that Solomon gives us of life under the sun is a true and accurate perspective. But there is another view, not from under the sun, but from above. And I want to conclude by reminding us of what that is. That view from above gives us the real nature of what earthly pleasure is. Let me give you some things that earthly pleasure is. Earthly pleasures promise more than they can produce. Did you know that? Pleasure has a great advertising agency, but a lousy manufacturing department. It advertises this, but it actually can't make it. It always promises more than it can actually produce. Our senses tell us that there's great pleasure to be found in that alcohol, but in reality we find that it produces ruined lives, broken relationships, and squandered wealth. Our senses tell us that the way to be a man is to pursue sexual delights, yet in the end it produces no lasting relationships and bodies that are ravaged by disease and families that are torn apart. And we easily succumb to the airbrushed images and the plastic smiles, and yet when we peel back that thin veneer, we see that all beneath is ugliness. Earthly pleasure promises more than it can produce. Also, it does not satisfy. Once you set your foot on the path of the road that sees pleasure as the goal of life, it will not satisfy. Now, it's a grave mistake for us as Christians to say that there is no pleasure in sin. Sometimes Christians act as though we're astonished that anyone can pursue the pleasures of the world. Preachers sometimes say there's no pleasure in sin. 
And then as a young person, you learn very soon that's not true. In fact, the scriptures tell us explicitly there is pleasure in sin. But it adds for a season. It's temporary. Earthly pleasure is only satisfying during the act. And after it's only empty if pleasure is your goal. Some of you may remember the old Lay's potato chip ad. You cannot eat just one. Once you set your foot down that path of pleasure, you'll find yourself sucked into a whirlpool, the bottom of which has horrors that you cannot imagine. And you will be asking yourself, how did I get here? It wasn't supposed to end like this. Earthly pleasure promises more than it can produce. It can't satisfy and it brings boredom and frustration. I said I'd mention Donald Trump. He said some years ago, quote, my attention span is short. And probably my least favorite thing to do is maintain the status quo. Instead of being content when everything is going fine, I find myself getting impatient and irritable. For me, the important thing is the getting, not the having. So once he achieves, it's the end of the pursuit. I'm bored. He's achieved the presidency. I wonder how he's, I wonder how he's liking that now, just as an aside. That which we desire most and we scrape and we claw to achieve bores us once we have it. And if we can't achieve it, we get frustrated. Earthly pleasure brings only boredom and frustration. But here's the heavenly nature of real pleasure. That's what earthly pleasure is really like. Here's heavenly pleasure. True satisfaction comes, friends, from living your life for an eternal purpose. This is why Jesus said, do not worry saying what will you eat or what will you drink or what will you wear for clothing, but do this, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. That's our first priority. Pleasures are empty because we know that all this world offers is not lasting. Even if we impact this world like no one has ever impacted it before. Even if the evolutionists were right and the earth was burned up in a nova of the sun one day, nothing would matter. The mission of Christ has left us here to pursue is our connection with the eternal. Apart from our place in his mission, nothing matters. But when we live a life in pursuit of his mission and his purpose, we can be satisfied to hear this satisfied even in the midst of difficulty. That's why Jesus could tell us rejoice when men revile you and despitefully use you. Rejoice because you're connected with something larger than yourself. You're connected to the eternal plan of God. True satisfaction comes from also expecting a future kingdom. One out of every 13 verses in the Bible refers to the return of Christ or his kingdom. Did you know that? Satisfaction is to be postponed to a future time. We're not trying to build our little slice of heaven here. We're looking forward to a heaven there. And true satisfaction comes from loving the risen Lord. When it comes right down to it, that which gives fullest pleasure is not recreation, entertainment, amusement, achievement. It's relationship. It's the intimate sharing of our thoughts, our feelings, our experiences with those whom we care, about whom we care. There's no lasting pleasure in the dancing girls and the charming gardens and those lavish buildings and the rich food and the challenging games that characterize the life of Solomon because there's no greater delight than being with the one we love. 
that should be God above all else, and then one another. Remember I gave you that passage that says, be careful how you build on the foundation of Jesus Christ, gold, silver, costly jewels, or wood, hay, and straw. At the end of that, Paul said this, who is that building that's being constructed? You yourselves are God's temple. We are to be investing ourselves in other people's lives, not in stuff and not in temporary things because those people are eternal and everything else is not. Now, finally, imagine Jesus on a sandy shore in northern Israel. There's a fire and there are fish cooking. Peter walks up. The Lord looks at the fish cooking. Peter's hungry and our Lord looks Peter in the eye and he asks, Peter, do you love me more than these? And that's the question. Do you love me more than what the world offers? If you give the wrong answer to that question, you're like a man who lingers long at cotton candy at a county fair while his wife waits at home with true, satisfying love. So here's your take-home truth. Only with God can we really live. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you again for these words of wisdom from your servant Solomon. We thank you for the, the raw nature of what you have given us, giving it to us as real life, as life in a fallen world really is. We thank you that we can read the experience of Solomon so that we don't have to repeat that experience ourselves. But Lord, we have to have hearts of wisdom in order to know to avoid that. So grant us hearts of wisdom that incline ourselves to you and your truth and apply it in our daily living. And as a result of that, may we have radically different lives, radically different from the world around us so that people see the light of Christ in us and want what we have. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, before our closing song, we're going to have a dedicatory prayer for the folks in our church who are going to be leaving for Mexico this coming Saturday for a ministry trip. So those of you who are going on that trip, if you all will come forward. Try to split it up. Thank you. Amen. Left them hanging there. We have a total of 36 going, 35 going on the trip. You can see most of them are young people, are teenagers and young adults. And then we have some adults going who are not so young. <laughs> sorry, Bob. Sorry, John. Sorry, Larry. They're going as, as sponsors and, and chaperones. What a great, great thing to see these young people. Some of them, just a handful, were not able to make it, but most were able to be here today. And what a great thing to see these young people serving the Lord and serving the Lord in this way. But let me just say, not just in this way. I mean, it's one thing to do all the work that they've done to raise funds, to go and to prepare for this. Uh, that's exciting in itself. But I can tell you that these young people standing up here, they serve the Lord uh, week in and week out in our church. 
I saw them doing that during vacation Bible school this, this week. Our young people serving every night. And then when it was over on Thursday night, cleaning everything up for a couple of hours afterwards. God has given us a great group of young people. Thank God. They're the future of our church. And their commitment to doing this is just representative of their service to the Lord. I also thank the Lord for these adults who are taking the time to go with them and to sponsor them and to oversee them in this. I thank Larry for putting all the time into planning and Julie all the time into putting planning into this. It's a huge undertaking. So let's pray for them. Let's pray that God will use them, that it will be a great time for them, that he'll grant them safety, and that all will go as planned. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you allow us to serve you. And as we've been reminded this morning, serving you by serving the people that you have made in your image who are eternal. They will last forever. We will all live forever somewhere. And so, Lord, those souls are of eternal value. So thank you for allowing us to serve you through serving them, both here and now in the case of this team abroad. I thank you for this opportunity for these 35 to be able to go on this trip. And I ask that you will grant them an enjoyable time, that you will grant them a safe time, that you will most of all grant them gospel success in the ministry that they're going to carry out for the churches there. Lord, we ask you to now prepare hearts for the ministry that they are going to render while they are there. And Lord, we pray that this will have lifetime memories for them and it will also be a motivation that will spur them on to greater service for you both here and abroad in the future. So we thank you for them and we thank you for this opportunity. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.